picture and say, what does this have to do with anything? And it'll make sense to you in just a minute. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, I, want to, I want to remind us, because this is actually going to kind of play a role uh, of, in about what we're talking. When the Savior was uh, on the earth during his mortal ministry, there were a number of groups that, uh, that were providing some pushback, how about we say it that way, uh, to what he, he was doing. And I want to remind you about two specific groups, because we're about to see echoes of that in the Book of Mormon. Um, if, we take, if we take the Savior's ministry, because we want to talk about the Jews, it's a little bit like talking about the Americans. And there are so many different sects and beliefs and motivations in, in the American electorate, you know, and what they're looking for. Well... The two of those that we are most acquainted with in the, in the New Testament, first of all, is the Pharisees. We've got to remember that the Pharisees were primarily rural. They were out in the smaller areas, smaller towns. Um, they were uh, not very well organized. Uh, but So every particular small town might have their rabbi, or their kind of wise man, their sage. And so there were a lot of Pharisees and, and their approach to the law of Moses as they were working in kind of the poorer class was to get into legalistic interpretations, try and understand the law of Moses and work so hard so that we never break the law of Moses. And how do you know this is true or this is true? Or we have to go to this rabbi or we have to go to that rabbi and get the interpretation because we're tearing it all apart and we're looking at it upside down. And it's a very legalistic view of, of uh, the law. Okay, So how do you make sure you're not breaking the law? Well, remember, what they would do is create this wall around the law. When we're talking about the Sabbath day, how do you know you're not breaking the Sabbath day? Well, we'll create additional rules to go along with that. And everything is written down and we study the heck out of that and we just argue endlessly about what is law and what is not. And so that they would make a man offender for his words. So, so often when the Savior would be preaching, they would be watching like crazy just to see, did he say the wrong thing? Did he do the wrong things? How many, how many grains of uh, wheat did they actually pull off the grain while they were walking through the... Because it was okay to take a certain amount, but too much is harvesting. Okay? So that's the Pharisees on, on one side. Uh, and then on the other side would be the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, remember, were very wealthy. That, that wealthy class, and, and so on, and they were smaller, and they were pretty unpopular. They were the Wall Street generation of this uh, of the time of the Savior. They lived a lot of times in the uh, in old town Jerusalem, in the city of David. Um, they, were, they were wealthy. Uh, they were the kingly class. A lot of times they had they, they were back to the Hasmodeans, the ones that had overtaken uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, Greeks. 
and they had traditions and big houses, and their idea was to be as kingly as was Caesar. So they were really big in with the Romans, and they tried to kind of mold everything they were doing to be Roman-like and to be rich-like, and if the Romans had it, we want it. And so in order to do that, you've got to make a lot of money. So how do you make a lot of money if you're a Sadducee and you're bound by the law of Moses? Well, you certainly don't want to have to pay too, attention, too much attention to all of the Pharisaical nitpicking of the law, right? So you don't handle the written word very well. You don't look at the written word very much. You want to be able to do your own thing. And the thing that you can do better, by the way, is that you're going to use taxes. Remember when it, for instance, if, if it's Passover time or it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and people are coming in from all over the known world. They may have Roman lira. They may have denarii. Uh, they may have a lot of different coinage. But in the temple, what you do is you set up that if you're going to be able to, if you have to sacrifice and you've traveled a long way and you're not going to carry your sheep all the way, you know, from uh, all over, you're going to have to buy sheep. But you've got to be able to exchange it. You can't buy it without doing a temple money. So we're not going to accept Roman lira. So how are we going to how are we going to get it into temple monies? Have to be an exchange rate, right? And we're going to charge a premium on the exchange. And every step along, and we'll charge higher prices for the sheep here as opposed to sheep that you bought in Bethlehem. You're going to pay. We're going to pay for the convenience of that. So at every step along the way, we're going to tax the heck out of you. Does this sound familiar yet? Mm. <laughs> okay. And so, so can you guess why it is they were unpopular? Because they were busy doing all of this. Um, and so that meant that they believed more in oral traditions. There are traditions out there. We're going to hang to the traditions. Are they written down? No. But they have all, this is just the way we've always done this. We don't want to be bound by anything. And if our oral tradition claims that we get to uh, hang out with Romans, and we get to do things the Roman way, and we get to incorporate some of their beliefs about mythology and Zeus and all that, and mix it in our belief, that's okay. Because we're trying to hang with the rich people and the, and the ruling class. Does that make sense? Okay. Didn't they not believe in uh, resurrection or life after? Yeah, we always say that one of the differences with the, if you're not sure, the Sadducees don't didn't believe in resurrection because they were sad, you see. And, and <laughs> that's, that's one way to remember that. But but it's not really written, and we're not paying attention. And so we're not going to pay attention to anything other than the strict Torah and the observances of the law of Moses. Anything outside of that, additional preachings, we're not buying into that. Because, by the way, the more rules, the more you're bound by stuff. You want to have as few rules as possible. And dang it, if I show up on Sukkot and Passover and I do Yom Kippur, I'm really then free the rest of the time to kind of do whatever I want. If I'm the Pharisees, I'm going to be bound by too many rules, and I don't like that. I want to be able to free to do that. Okay? Does that make sense so far? Okay. 
So I want you to look at these echoes as we kind of move forward then uh, into wonderful King Noah. So let's start with, uh, and, and we'll get this as the seat of Peter in St. Basilica, in uh, St. Peter's Basilica, and we will get into him in just a second. Okay, so let's turn to Mosiah 11. Now, it's always fascinating to me, maybe just because this is part of my profession, but it, I'm always fascinated by how people go from doing one thing to doing another. It's, it's still the science of change. How do people change and become different? And most of the time I'm trying to say, how do we take somebody like, for instance, with a lower self-esteem and help them become, get a higher self-esteem? Or how do I get them when they're depressed and helping them to be happier? There is a reverse thing here. How do righteous people, and this is kind of the story of the Book of Mormon, how do righteous people walk themselves into becoming wicked? And then how do wicked people go to being righteous? But this is one of those times, how do they go from being really good people to being pretty stinky people, and what factors play a role in them getting there? Which if you're a parent or a teacher of youth, you're kind of that's kind of an important thing to you, right? All right. So we have, uh, remember Zenith, who was overzealous, which we decided was entered, was kind of zeal without knowledge. So Zenith is going to die, and now the fruits of that overzealousness are now going to kick in because righteous Zenith is going to give way to his son, unrighteous Noah. Okay? And he's going to take that zealousness. All that energy just needs to be pointed in another direction. See, so he's going to be zealous. Came to pass as Zenith confirmed the kingdom upon Noah, one of his sons. Therefore Noah began to reign in his stead. And he did not walk in the ways of his father. He did not keep the commandments of God. But it's interesting, but he was obeying a certain set of commandments. And that was, instead of the commandments of God, he's following desires of his heart now there's part of the problem how do you how do you live and but he's still an observant Jew we're going to find out that he's probably very much a Deuteronomist and probably more Sadducee like watch the Sadducee in him start to show up because this, that's a it, this tendency is there and it shows up in wicked people all over the place so he's going to be an observant Jew from the outside looking in. Anybody would say, King Noah, is is he there on Yom Kippur? Yeah. Is he there for the Feast of Tabernacles? Yes. Does he celebrate Passover? Yes. He does. Is he sacrificing animals? Yeah. He's doing the stuff. But his desires of his heart are where? Somewhere else. And in this case... It's, it, it's what he wants. In this case, specifically, it's going to be on gold and helping himself. It's going to be about getting wealthy. So I, I'm, I'm going to, to anybody who looks on the outside, and, and, and this is going to be important in just a second, because remember, over and over, from Nephi and Jacob on forward, they said, if you are righteous, you will prosper in the land. 
And if you are unrighteous, you will not prosper. So what does it mean if you're rich? You're righteous. You're righteous because you're prospering. Okay? And that's why they're going to be a little ticked at Abinadi when they go, Well, dude, look at the gold. It's easy. I was just thinking, it's interesting how he put down all the priests of his father and, and then replaced them with his own. Yeah, there's that problem. That's one way to be right. Well, first thing you've got to do, if you're going to come in and do it your way, you've got to get rid of the people that aren't going to follow you. So this is kind of a coup. Which means we've got to get rid of the people who thought the way Dad did if I'm going to be surrounded by the people who think the way that I think. Okay? He put down the priests that had been consecrated by his father and they became idolatrous. Now, I don't think this is that far removed. Have you ever wondered, for instance, how does, how does Satan, in the pre-existence, for whatever, and I just can never completely get out of my mind, how, how a son of the morning, who's filled with all of this, first of all, how, how that goes bad. Jewish tradition is, is that it happened after the tree, after the Garden of Eden was created, and he went down and he looked at the Garden of Eden and he went, wow, i got to have this, and got excited about it. But however that worked. How does he then go to other sons of the morning and great people in the preexistence and say, follow me and Father is not on board with this and Jehovah's not don't do him follow me how does he talk people into following this line of logic how would he do it false promises false promises like what riches yes you get the Alps oh awesome easy life an easy life you can be able to do anything you want. One of his big promises was, "I'm going to save you all." Yeah, there's going to be, there's going to be, you could fall, right? So you're going to be able to be protected. Yeah. A sure thing. It is the sure thing. I want guarantees. And no consequences. And no consequences. No death. Yes, I, I, I want it, therefore I should have it. Okay, but specifically, if you're a Sadducee, for instance, what is it you want? Comfort? Power? Fame? Fame? Prosperity? And, and if I'm going to have all those things, and I'm, so now I'm going to be filled with pride? Remember, C.S. Lewis says... Pride isn't having something. It isn't having enough of something. Pride is having more than somebody else. So part of the promise, part of the seduction is you're going to have more than somebody else. You are smarter, better, more educated. Okay? It is. It's a selfishness. But it's a selfishness meaning that it's about me. And the only way that it can be about me, because it's not just every, he's going to save everybody, that would be nice, but then we're all on the same plane. To actually follow him, what are they looking for? 
They're going to be, as Isaiah says, they're going to be exalted above the hills. We're going to be better than everybody else. That means I'm going to raise you up and put you down. So this is what's going to happen as we get into the farther into the Book of Mormon. And we have this battle between the freemen and the kingmen. Those who should be king. And be king means I get to be in charge and I get to be the ruler. And you don't. And how do I distinguish uh, between how I'm better than you? Part of that, that distinguishing ability is... Money, wealth, gold. Royal bloodline. And the other one is royal bloodline. If I happen to tie back into that Mulek line that goes back to King David, so now I'm Judah, I am better. Why? Because I'm the royal line. You're just Ephraim. I'm Judah. If I'm Judah, then you should be, I, I have the right to kingship. I should be in charge. And you're gonna and so part of the appeal that we're gonna see here, and Noah's gonna use it, and Satan is gonna use Noah to do this, is I have to appeal to your pride. Now, by the way, let me take a step back from this before we start rolling into flattery here. In an, in an average Latter-day Saint ward, if you're feeling pretty good about yourself, but a little pride starts to seep in, how do you prove that you might be better than most people in the ward? How are you going to really feel good about yourself from a pride standpoint and, and take a look at everybody in the ward? How would, how would you be better? You become the bishop. Maybe the bishop, or, or at least, or at least certain certain callings say I'm better, right? So sometimes a calling, we know the the not so good people aren't in these callings, and the and the really good people are in these callings. How else? Ancestry. Ancestry. I go back. I go back eight generations in the church. That's a, the. I just trumped you. <laughs> I have pioneers. Where? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah, they were on the hand card. Yeah. 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 Whoa. You're one of those. So ancestry is a way to prove I'm better. What else? Money can be, right? So so sometimes how do you know you got the, the money? It can be it can be what we it, it's our clothing, right? Isn't it interesting how often in the Book of Mormon, when they're talking about the first thing that they would start to do is they started to have money, is that they would prove that, how would you tell? Fine twine linen, right? They're going to wear fine clothes. I've said this before. Can you imagine if we let everybody just make their own temple clothes? How crazy would that get? To prove I'm more righteous and what and how would we we already do it with wedding dresses. Yeah. <laughs> by by the po- <coughs> Oh, oh, you mean the reverse of that. If I Because if you have more money, then I am more humble. Yes. So, so I may. So, isn't it interesting? In my in my poverty, I may turn up my nose and do the pride thing. Well, you're you're poor. You can't be prideful. Oh, oh, oh. I. Well, you know what? 
Uh, you may have lots of money, but my kids are active and yours aren't. Because you, you worked or you spoiled them or you whatever it is. I'm, I'm trying to find that distinguishing thing that makes me better. Now, not so much, but it used to be, certainly when I was growing up, one of those ways that you could tell the righteous from the not so righteous is the amount of kids. Just simply look at how much space they take in church. How big of a row do you need? The really righteous people have really big... Yeah, and the, and the not so righteous people... A lot of finger pointing going back there, trying to count kids. <laughs> I know. By the way, I've got 12 grandkids, I'm just saying. <laughs> Yeah, 16. Yeah. yeah, but are they? See, and I think that's, and, and that's part of the struggle sometimes we get with, because it's, it's coming, I promise. Here comes Mother's Day, and we're going to do it. I promise we're going to do it on Mother's Day, and that's going to be uh, uh, all of my kids. I've been really blessed by God. Yeah, how? All my kids are active. All my kids were married in the temple. All my kids went on missions. And they're feeling grateful about that, but that's going to be seen in some quarters as more righteous as opposed to less righteous. And then women aren't going to show up at church because they can't meet that standard. Yeah. And it's baloney. For a seasoned bishop, that's one of the most dreadful sacrament meeting of the entire year. Yes. Who are you going to get to talk about Mother's Day on Mother's Day? Yeah. You have to be really careful. Yeah. You, you know, I got bumped uh, a couple of years ago in our ward. Because I was supposed to speak at Mother's Day, and the lady in front of me took the entire time, and, and and I just and I ended up saying no, and she was horrified at the end of that, and I said, "You gave, don't worry about it. You gave the talk that I've been hoping was given in a sacrament meeting, Mother's Day talk. She was a single mom who had struggled for years, and one and her and half of her kids had really struggled, but her faith in in the Lord was strong." And she was, and she gave, and I just, I didn't resent that at all because I just thought I had a good talk prepared. I can give this one later. That's the one I wanted given more than anything I had prepared. Yeah. I'll never forget uh, when a lady, I don't even think she was in our ward, got up and had a daughter that had strayed, and I, I was concerned she was going to have a nervous breakdown, and I have a son who isn't active in the church. And you know, I, I talk about that to people because some of some people feel if they they failed if yes. they have a son. I mean, you know, Lehi had a son and Alma had a son. Yeah. And and it's better to be accepting and unconditional love that child than to make them feel like yeah, but and so sometimes in this flattery and stuff like that, the reverse happens where we're not necessarily elevating somebody, but we're certainly putting ourselves down. Okay, all right. So so watch closely here. So here's what he's going to do. Yeah, I was wondering if Zenith saw those bad traits in his son, but because of the traditions of their fathers, making a king or he hoped that maybe king, he would step up. Well. He maybe saw that he may not be a righteous king, but he had to confer the kingdom upon him because he was of the line of Judah. Maybe. Just a thought. It, it could be. It could be. Yeah, I've been trying to track Zenith's 
Uh, I'm not sure if he was Mulekite or if oh, he was, okay. and, and I think he might have been. Okay. Anyway, uh, so he's going to put down the priest consecrated by his consecrated by his father, and then they also became idolatrous because they were deceived by vain and flattering words of the king and priest. And they did speak flattering things unto them. Okay, what kind of things? Let me hop over here to the Mosiah uh, 12, 13. That was verse 7, but what chapter was that in? About the flattering words. Then this one is actually Mosiah 11. So it's verse 7 of Mosiah 11. Okay. okay? So I'm going to give you an idea. Let's just hop over to Mosiah 12, 13. And this is after they've captured Abinadi. And they've dragged him before the king. And listen to their, their line of logic here. And now, O king, what great evil hast thou done? Or what great sins have thy people committed? That we should be condemned of God or judged of this man. Uh, and now, O king, behold, we are guiltless, and thou, O king, hast not sinned. Therefore, this man has lied concerning you, and he's prophesied in vain. Now, we're going to assume that King Noah is guiltless and that we are guiltless. Why? What proof do we have that we are guiltless? First of all, the king told us. Yeah, that's right. Because he's using... Flattering words, okay? We are strong. We shall not be come into bondage or taken captive by our enemy. Yea, thou hast prospered in the land and that thou shalt prosper. Remember the promise is if you're righteous, you will prosper. The other thing is, because I believe these guys are Deuteronomists, what... Salvation comes where? And, and, and Abinadi is going to smack him with this in just a second. Salvation comes how? Through the law of Moses. Okay? And I think this is in, I think this is in 13, right? No, maybe down here. Yeah, here it is. Verse 29. If you teach the law of Moses, why do you not keep it? Oh! <laughs> yes, I have a doctor's appointment this way. Take your one. It shall come to pass. Uh, let's see. Verse 31. And what know ye concerning the law of Moses? Does salvation come by the law of Moses? What say ye? This is a bit that I talk, asking them, and they're going to say, they answered and said that salvation did come by the law of Moses. And as Deuteronomous, what would they believe? Am I going to be saved? Yes. Why? Because I keep the law of Moses. Will we be brought into captivity and bondage? No. Why? We keep the law of Moses. And we're righteous. Why? Because we keep the law of Moses. It's about the law of Moses. And they're and because they're all gonna get they're gonna get tied up into that. And Abinadi, by the way, is gonna say, No, not so much. Because you're not keeping the law of Moses. Because as, as a Sadducee, like, they're not keeping the whole thing. They're just keeping the ones that keep them looking righteous. Okay? 
Okay. So, back here, back over to Mosiah 11 for a second. All right, verse 7, they became idolatrous. He did speak flattering things unto them. Now, maybe it's over here. Yeah, it's over here. Back over to Messiah Trump. I was in the wrong place. I find this really interesting that there are parallels here. What's happening with uh, King Noah's people and so I've actually I've actually tagged here uh, Jeremiah 16. Let's see, did I do a slide on this? Yes, I did. Um, nope, I did. Let me stop and ask you a question here before we take a look at how they how they did this. What is the difference in your mind between praising someone and flattering them? Because so much of this is going to revolve around flattery and the fact that they got into trouble when they were flattered. Okay? Where's our dividing line between praising? Because as good parents or good youth leaders, or and we're supposed to praise people, right? Okay, where's the dividing line, Barb? I think it has to do with motivation and also with truthfulness. Okay, so there's a motivation. It's on another hand. Yeah. Well, I think it's serving yourself with flattery. How how does that work? How do I serve myself if I'm flattered? How? How can I manip- but it, what, what's the difference between that and if I'm praising what they're doing? So if I'm praising honestly, it's not flattery? Not if it's not bringing something to you. It could be. Part of flattery is that it has to benefit me, right? That's one of that's one of those that's one of those little keys here. Okay? You I, I, I see you thinking, yeah. yeah. There, there is an ulterior motive, right? And so I'm going to, it's going to sound like praise, but there's really in it for, something in it for me. All you have to do is watch any politician That's right, because flattery means I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to puff you up so because it's going to benefit me. No, you really don't. Yeah, there's a, a post I came across here. Um, because with flattery, it's about, it's about something in it for me. Praise is, is kind of a debt being paid. Praise says, I saw something and I'm going to be quick to point out what, what you did and recognize it. Whether, it. whether it benefits me or not. But flattery means there's something in it for me. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, 
Yeah, and, and so a lot of times with praise, it's going to be much more specific. You did a wonderful job on this, or I thought, I appreciated that you did this. I appreciated you do this. Oftentimes, flattery is, you're so great, you're so wonderful, you know, you're just it's this general thing. But really, at the heart of it is what, what my desire is. I'm buttering you up because there's something ultimately that I want to get. It's, it's a, a salesman comes into the home and says, Oh, you have beautiful children, and I love what you've done with the place. You know, and they're doing that whole thing, and it's because they want something ultimately. So, ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It is prideful. But again, at the end of that flattery is, what do I get out of this? There's something in this for me. I'm going to, I'm going to be offering you faint praise, really based on the idea that I can see at the end what I get out of the deal. That's flattery. So a lot of times for Satan in the pre-existence, as it was for Noah, I'm going to be, you are wonderful, you are smart, you are great, you are, follow me, and then I get what I want out of the deal. And Noah's saying, I'm going to butter you up, guys, because you should be kings, you should be great people, and you're, you should be rich, and by the way, pay me extra. They are using them to get them. Because I'm going to see you as a useful idiot. Because generally with false flattery, I may not like you very much, but if I butter you up, you'll get me what I want. And it doesn't matter whether I really believe that or not. Okay? Alright. So. Oh yeah. And I found some good examples of flattery here. Sum it up, Your Honor. I'd just like to say that you're beautiful when you're mad. <laughs> yes. You're so great. <coughs> did, did I, uh, side note, did I ever mention that I had, had the wonderful experience of, of standing before a judge with a schizophrenic client of mine who's standing next to me? And, and the judge was saying, I'm going to need to revoke your driver's license because you were driving under the influence and we're going to be taking that. And then, then he said to this client of mine, and do you have any other questions? And, and my wonderful schizophrenic client looked right at the judge and said, yes, I'd like to know what a hollow point does to a skull on impact. Oh. <laughs> and the judge... So what did you say? And he says, yes, you asked me a question. I thought I'd ask him, what does a skull, what does a hollow point do to a skull on impact? And as up the corner of my eye, I can, I can see the bailiff coming up. The, the, <laughs> and I said, I'm so sorry, judge. Uh, and he says, are you threatening me? No, you just asked me a question. Okay, judge, bad day. We'll get him out of here. When I got him out of the hall, I was like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yes, I was. Did you take your meds today? Uh, let's see. For uh, this one, flattering insults raise the same question. What do you want? That's good. Flattery won't hurt if you don't swallow it. 
That's good. You forgot my birthday again. Do you expect me to remember when every year you look younger? <laughs> Guys, hey. <laughs> a really good one. And then this, then this one that I posted. Flat, flatterers actually dislike those they flatter and think themselves better than the people they profess to admire. It's one of those rules that kind of goes with flattery. Yeah, because again, a compliment like praise is, is a debt paid. I recognize that you did something, and I'm going to recognize it. Versus flattery, I'm looking in the future what I can get from you, and I may like you, and I may not like you. It's like on TV that when there's judge shows, and the first thing the person says is, that I watch your show every week. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, I know. <coughs> Okay. I'm going to come back here for a second. So let me give you an idea of, of how... How flattery works in this case. If I'm King Noah and I have these judges and the only way I can get my agenda forward is I've, got to, I've really got to flatter the heck out of these judges so that they will interpret the laws and rules the way that I want them and so that it feeds me best. Uh, there's a little detail in here. When I see details that are in here, I keep thinking, wow, on, on gold plates and, you're, and you're, there's an economy of space and time when they start including little bits of information, it means something. There, there's no extraneous details in the Book of Mormon. There's just not enough space to wander down tangents. Anything in the Book of Mormon means something. And this is one of those that I went, what does that mean? And then that sent me digging away. Verse 11. And the seats for these judges were set apart for the high priest which were above all other seats, and he did ornament with gold, pure gold, and he caused a breastwork to be built, that they might rest their bodies and their arms while they were speaking lying and vain words to his people. Why are we spending so much time on these judges' seats? What's the importance of that? Well, th th there's actually a lot of history that goes with judges' seats. And it, it goes back to, I, I hopped over to Matthew 23, uh, verse 2. So the scribes and the Pharisees, in uh, they're part of the Sanhedrin, guess where they sat? In Moses' seat. What, would, what was Moses' seat? Well, the tradition was for those people that when, when Moses was busy judging the Israel, remember his father-in-law says, you're going to wipe yourself out unless you start delegating some of this out, that he would sit in the judgment seat, Moses' seat, and he would judge from that. And from the judgment seat would come instruction and would come judgment. Whoever's in the seat is the judge. 
Whoever is in the seat sets the rules. Whoever is in the seat also explains and is and provides the instruction. Does that make sense? So in this case, uh, if we translate what the, uh, the the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, and it was it was the main chair, it was the big chair in the Sanhedrin. Who's ever sitting in there is is the one making the rules. And he's going to say to them, uh, and I put a better translation above it, because three leaves it a little bit murky as to what the Savior's response is. Therefore, (coughs) all that he, Moses, says to you, diligently do. But according to their Pharisee reforms, all all the little additions, you'll notice that the Savior never attacked the Pharisees for living the law of Moses. He always attacked the, their additional laws, the walls they built around the law. He went after that. Challenge. And that's the one he was going to attack. The law, the, the observing of the law of Moses, he kept strictly. So, do whatever Moses says to do, but according to their Pharisees' reforms, do not do because they walk, but do not do. Okay? In other words, don't do all the additional things the Pharisees are doing. And he could add to that the, the Sadducees. But keep the law of Moses. that makes sense? But all of that emanated from the Moses seat. Okay? Now, has that, does that have any bearing in, in today's world? Does that roll forward at all? Sure. It does, it does, it does. And this is at the heart of... The Catholic Church. Because the idea was is that the seat of Moses became the seat of? Peter. Peter. And it's the Peter seat. And that that's why, with a little help from uh, Bernini, well, there's, there's a Moses seat that was in, an example of a Moses seat that was in a lot of ancient synagogues, and they found a number of these Moses seats where the main rabbi sat to be able to dispense knowledge and judgment and things like that. Okay? And then in the basilica, that is a, right, way down there in the bottom. If you look right at the bottom, you see the little... See the little Peter chair right above the table? Yeah. Behind the red candle? Uh, yeah, it's right. It's right. You got the candelabra, then it comes across. That's actually back there as part of uh, the, uh, the massive uh, Peter seat that Bernini uh, uh, carved, formed. Okay? And then you got this little, the seat of, of Peter. And that and that's really kind of important in Catholicism because in a way what it's saying is uh, the part of the contention of Luther and a number of the other reformers was the fact that the Pope had a certain sense of infallibility. And part of that, and to a certain extent, there is that kind of belief. And that says... Again, because the, the papacy, when they sit in Peter's chair, they become Moses and the giver of the law. 
And so on one side we have the scriptures, but anything that the Pope is going to say while sitting in the chair is going to then add to uh, what's called sola scriptura. It's part of the scriptures. It has as much weight. So even though there wasn't a, a, a set of cardinals and you don't find uh, transubstantiation and you don't find uh, penance and all that kind of stuff in the scriptures because it is part of Catholic tradition and it came from a pope sitting on sitting in Peter's chair, it has the same weight as scripture. Does that make sense? That's why that, and that's part of what the reformers and the Renaissance were pushing back against. That says we we believe you should follow the scriptures strictly. Pharisees, they're saying no, it's tradition. Sadducees, and what's coming from the chair is is now scripture, and you're bound by that. Okay, that's why ultimately the the Greek word for uh, seat would be. Cafe. And what it really means is that if you are going to build, it's one thing to build a church, but if you're going to build a cathedral, a cathedral is a church with the seat. It has the seat. Cathedrals are the big ones with the seats. Does that make sense? Okay. In a sense, and, and the traditions are, in a sense, that's what the judges chair in our jurisprudence in a courtroom. They're going to come and they're going to all rise and the judge is going to come and sit in the judge's seat and from that seat will emanate law. And out it comes. Yeah. Is the cathedral the same thing as the basilica? Well, the basilica is like the massive cathedral. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a bigger version of it. But what makes... What, what makes the basilica a cathedral is that it has the seat. Okay? Does that, that make sense? Yeah. That's right. And, and, and it is. <coughs> But again, it, at the end of the day, so yeah, the, the word became cathedral because of the seat. But, but even now, we would just say the most important part is the seat because that's where law comes from. Okay. Now, by the way, I, I do think this all has its spiritual echoes. Where does, where does this all, what are they emanating? What did Moses' seat uh, be symbolic of? Okay, yet to say it again. The mercy seat. Where did where did the mercy seat sit? In the tabernacle. Where in the tabernacle? Uh, in the Holy of Holies. Where in the Holy of Holies? There you go. That's what that's the the mercy seat is what sits on the ark. And right between it are the two cherubs. In other words, there are two witnessing angels overlooking the mercy seat that sits on the Ark of the Covenant. And what's under? What's inside the Ark of the Covenant? The law. So it makes sense that the mercy seat would be the place where the law resides. And by the way, all of this at the end of the day is symbolic of God's throne. That, that that all emanates from him. Okay? Well, 
What happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Was it the Babylonians who took Well, didn't you see Indiana Jones? <laughs> <laughs> I did, but I didn't. It's, it's, in, a, it's in a warehouse in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Depends on where you go. The uh, the Irish believe that they have it, that it's that it's in this uh, area. Uh, the uh, there, there's another one in Africa that they believe that they have the Ark of the Covenant. Um, we don't know. Okay, but, well, but that's I, why I think it was in the. When I was Jones. in Israel, they uh, excavated this thing that kind of looked like it, and our guide said they got really excited because they thought they'd found that it. Maybe they found it, yeah. But it wasn't. Yeah, but again, the whole idea is ultimately to find this this seat. Uh, so let's go back here. to Moses 11. Verse 11, the seats were set apart for the high priest, which were above all the other seats. How did he flatter the priests? He gave them the seats. And what did the seats say about these particular priests? They were going to be the smart ones. They were going to be the dispensers of judges and rulings and in this case under Noah's rule what did that mean for these guys personally in their own personal lives it was time to get rich they had the power to tax they had the power to set the rules they had the power to set their own salaries oh that's right it was congress we're talking about right <laughs> It put them above the law because the, what is what is the law to these guys? Whatever. As I'm sitting in the seat, whatever they say it is, it's whatever I say it is. It's what as however I rule the law of Moses to really means this, and I'm not bound by a lot of traditions. I'm bound really basically by what I say the traditions say they are. I get to control the law because I sit in the seat. The, it is what we say it is. It, it, the ruling is what we say it is. Okay, and so there is this, and that's why I say that, that's where the the problem begins when we wander from constitution because the constitution is the law encoded, and then when we begin to say the scary thing, well, it's a living document. Well, that means we could make it whatever we wanted to make, and it could benefit whoever we wanted to benefit. That's frightening, and th that's why this really becomes kind of a, a pretty important deal. What okay. chapter is that verse 11 in, in the, about the seats? Moses 11, 11. Mosiah 11, 11. Mosiah 11. Yeah. Okay. By the way, there is one other thing, and I'll point it out while we're right here. I just think it's, it's just one of those little pieces that doesn't mean anything, but I just think it's very cool. Notice where they are. Uh, so high that he could, and in verse 12, he's also going to build a tower taller than the temple. Oh, the, the time we could spend oh. on that one. Um, a tower near the temple, a very high tower, even so high. Uh, uh, by the way, if, if you're in Rome, you can't build a building taller than St. Peter's Basilica because the basilica is always supposed to be the highest thing. In this, because we're saying that's the most important building. Here, Noah's going to, the first thing he's going to do is build a building taller than the temple. I'm more important than the temple is basically what he's saying. Okay. 
But, but this is an ancient land. Remember, this was the land of Nephi. What's the name of the land? Notice, overlook the land of... How would you pronounce that? Shiloh. Yes, it is. If you're going to say hi to somebody in Israel, what would you say? Shalom. Shalom. I just think it shows it shows the ancient Hebraic roots. Shalom. It's, it's, it's Shalom. Okay. And I love Shalom is coming and going and high and peace. There's a lot that goes into that word Shalom. Okay. And, and that's the name of the land. So. Okay. Okay, I guess we should introduce uh, Abinadi. Um, okay, Let, let's watch, uh, let's see. We know how, how uh, this story we know fairly well, right? In that uh, Abinadi is going to preach. Uh, it's going to be fairly harsh. Then they're going to run him out of town. Then he goes away for two years. Then after two years he comes back. Uh, he's going to come in disguise. He's not very good at the disguise game. <laughs> I, love, I love this. Verse 1. After the space of two years, Abinadi came among them in disguise. And, say, and they knew him not and began to prophesy and say... Thus has the Lord commanded me, saying, Abinadi. <laughs> so somebody needs to explain to Abinadi how the disguise thing works. You at least change your name. <laughs> Who are you, Abinadi? Oh. Then you can kind of get rid of the, you know, the funny glasses and the, and the false mustache, because we know who you are, because you said who it was. Okay? Um, all right, so he's going to... He's going to prophesy to them. Uh, of course, they're going to grab him. Uh, they're going to take him off. And then we're going to get this... Uh, uh, what evil have we done? Uh, what great sins have we committed? We're strong. We've prospered in the land. Here's this man. We deliver unto him thy hands, and thou may see us and doeth him good. Okay? Now, I, I need you to see why it is that what happens, happens. Because it is, it is uh, I don't know if Abinadi planned this or if the Lord is behind this, but it is just this additional witness that Abinadi is who he is. And that is, Noah's going to throw him in prison, uh, then they're going to question him. So from the judgment seat is going to emanate their instruction, it's going to emanate their knowledge. And we're going to grill this pauper, this poor man, because we are smarter and wiser. Let me stop for a second. You ever been grilled by somebody that is that kind of looks down on Christianity? Uh, especially kind of if you're a little more of an atheistic bent. What's the, what's the feeling that you get from those moments? You're an idiot. You believe in what? A, a flood? Come on. You're Mormon. What does that mean? Magic glasses, really. 
angels, gold plates, looking in a rock. Really? I think you're. I thought you were smarter than that. It's kind of a me, you kind of thing. You're. I'm smarter. I'm wiser, and you're Neanderthals. What's wrong with you? And I think that's kind of what's happening. From their seats, they're looking down on Abinadi, and it's like they walk right into the lion's mouth. Okay. Um, what meaneth these words which are written and which have been taught by our fathers? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. <laughs> well, let's do Isaiah. Uh, now, why of all the things... This, this is this is the uh, this is the equivalent of of throwing a beach ball over the plate to a major league baseball player. <laughs> See if you can hit this one. How about what does this mean? How beautiful upon the mountains? Whoa! Okay, why would they? But why were they dumb enough to go down this line in the first place? Why would they use this first? Translate what is being said from the mercy from the from their seats. Why would they use this verse? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring of good tidings and publish of peace, and bring of good tidings of good that publish salvation that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. No. Yeah, why are you being so negative? Why are you giving me all the negative waves here, man? What, you know? Noah's a good guy. We're good guys. We're prospering. How come you're bringing negativity in the building? What's wrong with you? Look at our wealth. And, and we'll, we may have Jacob on our side who says if, you, if you're righteous, you'll prosper. And if you're not righteous, you won't. You've seen my house lately? You check, check out my seat I'm sitting in. See the gold? That's proof. And you're bringing all the negativity stuff in here. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. That's not a very loving act. Not a very, it does, just seems harsh to us. Yeah, and, and so you're bringing this negativity stuff here because diversity also ought, also ought to mean that we accept everything and any, anybody, anything you're doing should be okay. And these days, if you're going to say to somebody, what you're doing is not okay, that's hate speech. That, that, that's a really good parallel. That's just wrong. Well, that's kind of mean. That's kind of mean-spirited. So he's going to, how beautiful upon the mountains, thy watchman. I mean, they just give him the whole quote. Uh, and then Abinadi just kind of hits it out of the park. Are you priests and pretend to teach this people? And to understand the spirit of prophesying, yet you desire to know me in these things. Woe unto you for, for, for perverting the ways of the Lord. And then I love this one. You have not given your hearts to what? Understanding. You have not been wise. What do you teach this people? 
What has their focus been on? If you're in their hearts. Hold on. If, 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 you're, if you're in a court of law and you are a defense attorney, your job is to do the defending of your client. Are you interested in obeying the law? You want to obey the law? No. What do you want? To win. How to, to win. So how do I win? i got to get around the law. If, if the law's there, I'm not trying to understand the importance of the law. I'm trying to understand where are the loopholes? How can I get out of this? How do I get... How do I... So, in, in essence, they were looking at the law of Moses. Were they looking at it, how do I understand the law of Moses? No, what were they looking at it as? How do I get around it? How do I take advantage of it? How do I get rich from this thing? How do I turn it into a money maker? Because my focus is not on understanding the law. My focus is on gold and riches. And power and strength. Okay? So, you haven't applied yourselves. You teach the law of Moses, but you don't keep it. Does salvation come by the law of Moses? What say ye? And then he's going to start, then he's going to go right down the, and this is kind of important. I know that if you keep the commandments, you shall be saved. If you keep the commandments, which the Lord delivered unto Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, and then he just starts rolling down the Ten Commandments. Let's just go back to basics. I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Oh, by the way, they were idolatrous, which means they were getting into idols. Why would they get into idols? Where's their motivation? And what do you get? How are you going to get what you want? Money. It's about it's about getting rich. I can sell the idols, and I can control people using these idols. That's why they're doing it. Okay. Thou shalt know the gods, no graven image. Abinadi says, have you done this? No, you're not. You've to- taught these people not to do it. No, I say you haven't. Nay. Over the 13. Now, when the king had heard these words, he says, away with these fellows, slay him. And then from the, from the seat, he says, the problem with this guy is that he is mad. I can't believe as Mormons you follow Joseph Smith. He was kind of kooky. He was kind of crazy. He was kind of nutty. He was kind of anybody who would follow you're just smarter than that. Okay? That is the that is the ultimate age-old attack on any believer. You're just stupid. You're just mad. You're being crazy. And then he's gonna say, touch me not. And we get all this thing. Now, Mormon is going to throw in here a little detail that if, if you don't see it in context, you'll mix really what is going on here. And it's a, it's a beautiful little touch. Touch me not. God will smite you. And it came to pass. Look at verse 5. Abinadi had spoken these words and the people of King Noah durst not lay their hands on him for the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And here's Mormon's commentary. And his face shone with exceeding luster even as who? Oh! 
even as Moses did while in the Mount Sinai, while speaking with the Lord and coming down from Mount Sinai with what? The law of Moses. He was just quoting the law of Moses. He'd just been attacking him for not obeying the law of Moses. And then when they try and touch him, he's even going to take on the personification of Moses. He will glow as did Moses. That's amazing if you think about it. It's one thing if I get, when, when uh, my, my pioneer grandfather uh, recorded this in his journal, and he's one of the, he's one of the, the primary sources for this, this event in church history, and that is when that moment in Nauvoo in August of 1844, uh, when Joseph has died and the apostles have returned to uh, Nauvoo and Sidney Rigdon has already been there for two months saying an angel told me that Joseph was slaughtered and I should be the custodian of the church Joseph still has the keys but he's dead and I will be the custodian I'm, I, I Sidney Rigdon should be the leader and he's going to speak for hours and hours about why he should be and a number of people were being swayed and, and in the grove they just roll a wagon up there and Sidney Rigdon has spoke and then Brigham Young gets up and speaks uh, on that setting, I think it's I think it's August eighth, sixth or eighth. And Brigham Young gets up, and what happens? He takes on the visage. He takes on the the view, and uh, and and my 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 pioneer grandfather's journal records he began to speak and sound just like Joseph. Uh, another mother has a child by her side, and just as Brigham stands up to speak. The child does what toddlers mostly do in church, which is throw things down on the ground. So she's, so she's down on the ground trying to get the thing that the child just threw down. And while she's down, Brigham Young starts to speak. And, and, she, and before she even looks up, she goes, Joseph is back. And she looks up to see where Joseph is and sees Brigham. Is that lifelike? It's just like this visage comes over and this, this testimony that something has occurred. I don't think that's too far removed from what's happening here. <clears throat> if Abinadi is going to preach about the importance of keeping the law of Moses, and he's going to preach, and they're now going to touch him, there's a lot of things that he could have done. He could have done what Nephi did with, with Laman and Lemuel, and just do the shock thing, stay away. But his, eye, his face is going to glow just like Moses. Now remember the, the fascinating thing in and uh, this has sometimes been mistranslated when Moses comes down off the mount, that instead of having glory, he has horns. So, so Michelangelo, when he carves Moses, Moses has horns, because they, mis, they mistranslated the, uh, uh, the, the verse. But it was glory that is coming from him while speaking with the Lord, and he spake with power and authority from God, and then he continues his words. I believe it's, an, it's one more testimony coming from Abinadi to these apostates to say uh, the law of Moses that you, that you said you believe in. I believe in the law of Moses. We, we're always kind of talking about the fact these guys are Deuteronomists and that they have changed the law. But remember, Nephi and Lehi and Jacob and Mosiah and, and um, Abinadi kept the law of Moses till it was time, till it was fulfilled. 
And in this case, they're gonna, he's going to personify Moses as he stands before King Noah. And I, I, I think that's just incredibly powerful to me. Right. Uh, okay, that's probably... Uh, is that plenty for today? Then he's going to finish... He will then finish uh, all of this, but he's still not getting to the question. He's still not answering Isaiah, which we will pick up next week, by the way. Um, again, I just think as we look... This, this, this speech by Abinadi is matching King... We should look at this talk by Abinadi at the same time as we're looking at uh, King, uh, King Benjamin's address because they, they kind of fit very beautifully together about explaining who the Savior is and, and what He intends to do. Okay? Now, my challenge to you, as you start reading the rest, as you start in uh, uh, Mosiah 14 and 15 and 16, look closely at the, at the seed that he's going to talk about how the Savior will see his seed and who the seed is as he's, as he's speaking to King Noah. Bear you my testimony. This is, this is true. The, the Spirit is here. These were real people. Uh, and the more we dig and the more we, we see, the more we understand just the, the relevance as it is to us. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Our Father in heaven, we come before you.